Well, good morning. Uh, before we start, I have a couple of announcements to make. I meant to do this at the beginning, and then I did not, so we'll take care of these right now. But, but one is there's a change happening in the building starting next week. Uh, that room right there that we've always called the ping-pong room, for obvious reasons, uh, one of our, Sunday, our kids' Sunday school classes starting next week is going to begin meeting in there. And so the purpose of that room is changing. It will also be used for, with, uh, with the youth. So what we're asking is that, um, that for parents of young kids, uh, we've always kind of treated that room as a, a, a casual place to, for all the kids to go and run and play. If we could now have a policy of, uh, for kids who are under youth group age, so under the age of 11, if they could be accompanied by a parent if they're in their playing, that would be, that would be great. Um, the other announcement is that there are a couple of unique uh, teaching opportunities this month in Amarillo that we want to make sure you're aware of if you want to, make, uh, to take advantage of these. One is going to happen later in the month, September 23rd and 24th, at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Not Redeemer Christian, but Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Uh, they're having a speaker, Dr. Terry Johnson, come and speak on the sovereignty of God in the life of the believer. So that's the topic. You can see more information in the back if you're interested in that. Um, the, the, the second of those is this week. We just found out about this recently, so that's why I'm telling you now. But this Thursday at 6 p.m., uh, Dr. James White is going to be speaking in Amarillo. Some of you know that name, that he is, he is a... Uh, a foremost expert uh, of our time in things like New Testament manuscripts. Uh, he has famously debated uh, Muslim scholars, Mormon scholars, Jehovah's Witnesses on these, on these subjects. And he's speaking Thursday night on the reliability of the New Testament. Uh, that is a subject to hear him teach on. It, it'll be a great advantage. So, Know that that's coming this Thursday, 6 p.m. It's being hosted by Westview Christian Church. Um, and let me know if you have any other questions. We can sure get some more of that information for you. They have not produced any kind of, of document to post or anything like that, so it's not uh, on the back wall. But, okay, so with those in mind, open your Bibles with me, if you haven't already, to John's Gospel, John 19. Uh, we ended at verse 30. Last week, so we begin at verse 31. Uh, and what we're coming to here, we'll look at verses 31 to 37 together this morning. And we're coming to a place that contains something fairly curious. Uh, and what I'm referring to is verse 35. We find John here in the midst of telling this account, this narrative of Jesus' passion, his crucifixion, his death. We come this morning to a place where he suddenly feels it necessary to stop and interject his own comment into the writing in order to assure us that he is telling the truth. It's very interesting. You see that there in verse 35. He's speaking of himself. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. It's, it's interesting that he would feel the need at this moment to stop and put that in here. It's something that we see happen elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, Paul does this three times in his letters. He's not writing narrative, he's writing letters. But he stops and does the same thing. Uh, we see it in Romans 9.1. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And again, in 2 Corinthians 11:31, he stops what he's writing, and he says, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. And then thirdly, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2:7, he says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. It is fascinating to me to picture the writers of Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit feeling the need in those moments to put into writing an assurance, an oath like this. And it seems to me that in the places where they do that, you can tell that they are describing something that they know to be very important, and yet at the same time something in which they also know 
that there is going to be something controversial here such that their honesty is going to be questioned. You can tell that they feel this pressure as they write those things. Well, we find that here this morning from John. And what is the subject matter that leads him to add a statement like that in our passage this morning? It comes to us amid his descriptions of a series of certain evidences that Jesus Christ truly and actually died. It's not hard to understand as we think about the subject of Christ's, not, not only his bodily death, but his, the wider subject of his bodily existence at all. Well, we know we're talking about a subject that has been controversial and continues to be to this day. Controversy about, in this case, the reality of his death physically goes back as far as his death does. And as we've said, not just his death, but it's been a controversial matter all the way along to say that Jesus is God come in the flesh. The entire reality of Christ's bodily life has found from the beginning enemies that have sought to question and to twist the Bible's teaching about the God-man. God coming born as a man. God then in the flesh dying a true and gruesome death, being then raised from the dead. Even in the first generation that John is directly writing to, these challenges are already arising. And so you, you hear them because of that. You hear the, the writers of the New Testament making statements to refute those accusations. That helps us to know that they were already wrestling with these kinds of controversies. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly, cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This author, John, opens the book of 1 John with these words. And just think as you're hearing them again, what is the occasion what are the circumstances that would lead him to open his letter in this way? He begins 1 John like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. How much more can he say to convey the reality that what he is testifying about, namely the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, these are physical realities that they saw and touched with their hands. And so here too this morning, we come to a place where a human author is led by the Holy Spirit to record details and proofs of the true bodily death of Jesus. And he goes out of his way to emphasize the truth and accuracy of what he's writing. And all of that gives us a sense, I think, that we are doing well to be paying close attention here to the claim that's being made. We'll even see this morning that the, the events described here in this passage, really serve the particular function of definitively demonstrating Jesus to have died. And so with all of it then, this morning, what we're faced with is the matter of the significance of Jesus' physical death. And we're going to think about that together through several steps. We'll read together in just a moment, verses 31 to 37. But the first step we'll take together will not be to look into our text, actually. The first step that we'll take together is going to be to ask of the New Testament generally, why is his physical death significant? And so we'll look at that in a number of places. The, the second step, then, will be to take that reality and consider the evidence that John gives us here of Jesus' true death in verses 31 to 37. And then third, we'll end by noticing several things that are not primary to the text's meaning, details within the text that we find this morning, but that have some profound implications on our, on our living and especially on our thinking and our thought lives. 
So this is where we're going together. But before we go further, let's read John 19, verses 31 to 37. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Beginning at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The first thing that we do together here is we, we try to look broadly within the New Testament. So be, be ready to walk with me to several places here as we think about this. We, we need to be reminded as we start on this subject, why is it of such significance that Jesus did die physically? What was his intention? And why was it necessary? Why did he have to die, to actually die? We cannot begin to appreciate this without having it firmly fixed in our minds that Christ Jesus, in coming into the world the way he did, we cannot appreciate this if we don't, if we don't have firmly fixed that what he was doing is he was coming in order to go ahead of his people. Jesus was going ahead of us. Jesus was making provision for his people who were hiding in him as he did the things that he did. He came to do in representation of the people that belonged to him. And as that happened for Jesus, we, it was happening in the same way that we've seen it happen in many other places in Scripture. It's happening like it happened with Adam in Genesis with the first Adam, as he's called, who stepped out and acted as federal head of his people, so that in his case, when Adam sinned in the garden, what Romans 5.19 says is, all sinned in him when he sinned. Why would that be? It's because of this pattern that God has established, that we be represented by these heads. So this is what happened with Adam, who acted as federal head of a people, this is what happened with, uh, even in a very specific way, with Jesus' father, David, who faced Goliath in this way. You remember the story of the battle between David and Goliath. David goes out to fight Goliath, and he's doing it on representative behalf of the nation. They have this arranged. They're going to battle so that the two nations wouldn't battle, and whoever wins that battle wins on behalf of their entire people. In just exactly that way, we find in Scripture that Jesus comes into the world and walks and lives on behalf of his people. So we have to start there. But we quickly come to our question about death because of the nature of how God has made us. So what kind of a people are we as God has made mankind? And we find that the nature of the people that Jesus represents, I mean, the reality of us is that he has made us bodily, hasn't he? Flesh and blood. If he is to represent us, we who are of this nature, it necessitates that Christ's work be work done in the flesh. This is the point that's made in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2. So turn first with me there, Hebrews 2, starting at verse 10. Notice the point that he's going to make here. I'll read uh, verses 10 to 17, and then we'll take note of a few things here that we see. As we come into verse 10, just note he is speaking about the Father's plans that were exercised then in the sending of his Son. 
So verse 10 starts like this, for it was fitting that he, that he is talking about the Father, right? Uh, verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, see, the writer is just, Referencing all these places in the Old Testament that are attesting to this. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So that pictures our relationship to Christ like that of a relationship of children to their parent. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Now he's going to distinguish in verse 16 between us, we who are flesh and blood, and the angels who are not flesh and blood. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Do you see the point that he is making here about why Christ had to come in the flesh and not just come, but then die in the flesh? He has taken on our flesh in order that we, who are flesh, might be represented by him. And he cannot work representatively on our behalf without partaking of flesh and blood, to use that language of verse 14. Now, that's the context of all of his redemptive work on our behalf. It's the case in terms of his perfect obedience that he lived in his life, that he offered to God, earning righteousness. It's the case in, in many ways that we could think of in terms of the work that Jesus came to do. But the question for this morning is, what does that say about his death, the work of his death? Why did he need to die as our representative? And I think we get the clearest answer to that question in the book of Romans. So go now back to the book of Romans, chapter 6, starting at verse 5. This is exactly the point that Paul is making here. Let's read verses 5 to 10, and then we're going to walk backwards through his argument there that we hear. Romans 6, starting in verse 5. Paul writes, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we, die, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now walk backward through what he's saying there. You see, verse 10, by his death, Jesus died to sin with the result that he now lives to God, never to die again. And that's what we find then in verse 9, isn't it? That in doing what he has done, he has conquered death. Verses 5 to 8, take that, we can apply it now to us. If that's the case, and if we by faith have been united to this one, then what that means is that his death became our death. So that the life that he now enjoys belongs to us because we've been united to him. This is the argument that Paul is making. Jesus had to die because we were going to die. The wages of our sin is death. The very justice of God himself demands it. Someone is going to die for the sins that you have committed. 
And I mean that word die in the fullest sense of the word. We're not just talking here about physical death itself. Physical death is a shadow of death's full reality. True death is to be sealed to the fate of being an object of separation from the one for whom we have been made. We're sealed to the fate of becoming an object of God's eternal wrath. So that we are forever separated in judgment from the one who is the source of all and any. Hope, pleasure, peace, goodness. It's that separation from God and only being the objects of his judgment. This is the fullness of what the Bible warns us about concerning death. And that's the separation that we experience in physical death. Separation of body and soul. As terrible as it is. Is simply called in Scripture the first death. And it's those who are spared from what the Bible calls the second death. It's those who are spared from that that John calls blessed in Revelation 20, verse 6. And when we understand the fullness of death that was hanging over us, that was rightly coming to us, we understand then the promises that we heard from Jesus. Way back in John 11, you remember when he said to Martha, in John 11, 25, he who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is what he has come to secure for us. And so this is Romans 6. He had to die as our representative because death was the judgment rightly coming to us. It was the reason that he was sent into this world to rescue us. It is the cup that the Father had given him to drink so that those who are in him would never have to taste it. And it's significant because if he does not die for us, then we continue to face that fate. It is still the thing that is waiting for us. Does it get any more significant than that? Now, having reminded ourselves of that, I think we can better appreciate then why John goes to the efforts he goes to here to emphasize the fact that Jesus on the cross truly, actually died. He breathed his last and he surrendered his spirit. Body and soul rent from one another, separated in death. So the second step that we'll take this morning then finally brings us into our text. So you can come now back to John 19. But before we start with verses 31 to 33, I want to point out something about verse 35. Look first at verse 35. The question is, what, what, what testimony, which testimony is John referring to in verse 35? Here's what he says. He says, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. We've seen that he's really making an emphasis here. When he does that, is he only referring to the last thing that he just wrote about? Is he referring there specifically to the event of the spear piercing only? Or is he making that statement about both of these evidences that he's just provided? And I think it's clear that he's doing the latter. He's, he's talking about his description of both the events of the leg breaking and the matter of the spear piercing. And I say that because of how he follows it up. Look at how he follows that in verse 36. He explains that assurance, that, that promise. Verse 36 starts with the word for, doesn't it? And then in explanation, he pairs the Old Testament significance of both of those events together. So he makes that solemn statement in verse 35, and then verse 36 says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. You see, he, in explanation for that, he points to the fulfillment of both of those events. And what is it that joins both of those things together that we're going to see? What joins them together that is so important that he feels the need to verbally express his trustworthiness regarding their testimony? The answer is that it's by both of these things 
that John is demonstrating that Jesus had truly died. It starts in verses 31 to 33 with the legs. The Jews arrange for Jesus' legs to be broken in verse 31. There's some, condition, some, some scenarios set there, some of the setting. We'll look at some of that next week as we think about his burial. But we read it in verse 31. And in verse 32, the soldiers get word and they get started. So we're told in verse 32 of the other two criminals. But what happens then in verse 33? These Roman soldiers assigned to crucifixion duty, these death experts, come to Jesus and quickly find that he has already died. They find it and they are so certain of it that they who have been charged to break their legs so that they might be put to death quicker judge that it's not even necessary to go ahead and go through the motions. So obvious is it that he has died. Now, given that the details of a crucifixion are such that if you're going to take a breath when you're hanging on the cross, you have to move, you have to push against the nails and lift up in order to get a breath at all. Given those kinds of things, it would have been a fairly easy thing for most anyone to discern there as he hangs and does not move. But even further, these soldiers knew what they were doing, don't they? And they're close enough to him to be able to literally touch him. They can see the movements of his body. Here's how one man described them and their experience here. One man wrote, accustomed as Roman soldiers necessarily were to see death in every form, wounds of every kind, and dead bodies of every description, and trained to take away human life by their profession, they were of all men least likely to make a mistake about such a matter. Thus we have it most expressly recorded that the soldiers saw that he was dead already and therefore did not break his legs. So the fact of their not even finding it necessary to break his legs, that fact is a strong testimony to the reality of his death at that moment. Verse 34 then serves the very same end. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, if you're interested, I'll share with you a little bit about a debate that happens here. This is a point that people argue about. Uh, what are we really seeing here as he is stabbed and then blood and water come out? The blood is not very tricky, is it? It makes a lot of sense that you would bleed when you're stabbed in the side. But it's the clear liquid, what, what they're calling the water, that we wrestle with. And it could be one of two things, maybe even more than that. Um, it could be that this was a spear thrust upward into the heart itself. So that in addition to blood, fluid from what's called the pericardial sac. Let me make sure I say that. I see some nurses in here nodding. P people, I guess, know about this. That's good. Uh, it could be that that's what took place, so that this fluid also came out. Some think that. Others disagree, and they think that that's unlikely. They say that, no, if that's what happened, that would have pulled inside the body cavity. It wouldn't have come out of the wound. And they suggest something else. Uh, the description that I read is, is that when there is severe injury to the chest over a sustained period of time, but there is nothing pierced, hemorrhaging fluid collects inside the chest cavity itself. I read that it can, it's been found to be up to two liters worth of this, of this fluid. And as it sits there for time, and especially after the body has died and it sits, it separates into a clearer serum on top and deep red on the bottom, so that if the chest cavity is then pierced, they would flow out one after the other. So there's, there's some possibilities as to what is literally being seen there. There are others who will point to the miracle in the Old Testament of the rock that Moses struck and say, no, this is actually a miracle happening here as water is flowing out, pointing us. Um, whatever the reason for the flow of what he calls blood and water, this is clear, though, isn't it? John is emphasizing the inescapable reality that Jesus at that moment is dead. Undeniably, true physical death and beyond any shadow of a doubt. Christ was representing us as he was raised on that cross. 
And as he was raised, he became a curse for us. He took our curse upon himself. And we're focusing this morning on the physical death, but we understand, don't we, that something far beyond mere physical death was taking place. We've, we've described the, the, the wider understanding of that word, the wider warning and judgment. And as he hanged there dying, the cup of God's wrath was poured out upon him, and he bore it in our place. It's what Isaiah wrote about 700 years before this happened, when he wrote of a coming Redeemer who, it says, by his wounds, wounds received for our transgressions, by those wounds, God's people will find healing. And he warns us there that this Redeemer will be crushed for our iniquity. Isn't that something for us to think about as we consider the weight of our own sin? How much of your sins are known only to you? Isn't it something to think about that when our Lord cried out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit, one of the things he was announcing was that the debt for your sins had successfully been paid. All the wrath that was to come for them had come, had been experienced. He told us that this was coming. Didn't he tell us back in chapter 10 that he was the good shepherd who was going to lay down his life for his sheep? And for that reason, it's a moment for us again to make clear, Jesus has come to lay down his life for his sheep, which which screams a question to us as we think about that reality. And we see him now dead on the cross, having finished the redemptive work that would be done. The question that it screams to us is, are you one of his sheep? If you do not belong to him, If you are not represented by him, if your trust has not united you to God by his mercy, this sacrifice has done you no good. You are still in your sins. And what awaits you at death, if you do not humble yourself before the cross of Jesus Christ, is nothing but full judgment for everything you have ever done. Jesus Christ is the only name that has been given and will be given under heaven by which we can find rescue and forgiveness and salvation. We do well to remember that as we see finished work on the cross. There is no other answer. If you will not bow the knee to King Jesus and come to him in fear and in awe and in love, That punishment awaits you still. Now, the last thing that John does in these verses, you see verses 36 and 37, is to again make the point that we saw so powerfully last week, that God's revelation has been foretelling this path all along. Look again at verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. That second one in verse 37 is a lot easier to nail down than the first one. Verse 37 is pointing us to Zechariah chapter 12. Art just read it for us before we we began uh, the sermon. And we'll go back there in a few minutes. But verse 36 is more difficult. What What exactly is verse 36 leading us to ponder? Is verse 36 aiming us at the picture of the Passover sacrifice of Exodus 12, whose bones were commanded not to be broken. Let not his bones be broken. That would fit. Is that the picture that it's holding out to us? Christ as the Passover lamb? Is verse 36 pointing us to the righteous man of Psalm 34? Psalm 34 speaks of God's posture toward the righteous. And he says, Not one of his bones will be broken. I will not allow his bones to be broken. Is is this a declaration of the righteousness of Christ as he hanged there? There are good arguments for both. 
And for the sake of time this morning, we won't, we won't wrestle with that question. It, it, if you're interested in it, uh, it will be the subject of this week's church newsletter. We're going to look more at those, those considerations. Now, it comes out later this week. But here's what I would ask you this morning. Is it not obvious from what John has just done here in pointing us, even in these details, back again to the Old Testament? Is it not obvious that this scandalous notion of a Redeemer securing victory by being put to death, even death on a cursed cross, is it not obvious from what he's doing here that this has been God's plan that he has had in mind and revealed the whole time? In Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches a sermon, and he's in Jerusalem. It's fascinating to think that many of the people hearing Peter preach that sermon had doubtless watched Jesus hang on the cross with their own eyes. And in that sermon, he recounts how they did these things. They asked for a murderer to be granted them instead of Jesus. He says, you put to death the prince of life. He says those kinds of things. But then he says this, this is Acts 3, 17. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. It's that reality of the prophets and their testimony of this death that John is reminding us of again here in verses 36 and 37. The Passover pictures had displayed God's plan to kill a substitute so that they might go free. David and the prophets after him had demonstrated that it would be the suffering of God's servant that would bring healing. How many times do we need John to point this out to us that we be thoroughly settled in our minds? This is the plan of, of our Father. That his victory would be, would be secured in shame and in suffering and in death. This is the path that he has walked, that he calls us to walk after him, and it has always been the plan. So having reminded ourselves of the significance of this physical death of Christ, and having seen John provide these evidences of his death, the third and final thing for us to do this morning is to think together, I would have us just consider the scene itself of death that we're looking at here as we look upon the one that was pierced, the one that we have pierced, hanging there between two convicted criminals now bled and suffocated to death, having reached the end that he walked to knowingly. Think of all of the things we've been hearing about this picture that we're looking at. As we look at that scene, what can we take away that we haven't thought of already this morning from the details? I'm sure there are several things, but I would end by having us notice three. The first is this, it's worth our notice. Because this one prepares us for our own lives as Christians, who we know we have been saved by grace, we have been forgiven, we have been promised the joys of heaven. It's worth our time, I think, to notice the experience of the criminal that hanged beside Jesus there. Do you remember that one of those criminals turned to Christ for life as he was hanging there? He was repentant, he was trusting in the Lord Jesus. Luke 23 tells us the story that this man gives affirmation that Christ was dying innocently. He had done nothing wrong. And he turns to him for rescue. Luke 23, 42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Christ gave him mercy in that moment, eternal mercy, as he promises him a place in his eternal kingdom. 
And then what happens to that man after that? Soldiers walk up and shatter his leg bone. And I mean shatter it. We have, uh, well, we have recovered bodies that have gone through crucifixion. And they write about these things. I mean, it's not like a simple break. It's a shattering. That was the next thing that that man experienced after having received these great and precious promises. And it's just one picture that makes something very clear to us. At least it must be clear to us if we are to walk the rest of our path in this life well and be prepared for it. J.C. Ryle put it very well back in the 19th century. Listen to what he wrote. He said, It is noteworthy that the penitent thief, even after his conversion, had more suffering to go through before he entered paradise. The grace of God and the pardon of sin did not deliver him from the agony of having his legs broken. When Christ, when Christ undertakes to save our souls, he does not undertake to deliver us from bodily pains and a conflict with the last enemy. Penitents as well as impenitents must taste death and all its accompaniments. Conversion is not heaven, though it leads to it. That helped me this week to, to hear and to be reminded of. My friends, as we go through the miseries of this life, which are leading all of us to death, right? what is the survival rate what is the percentage for the human beings in this room? It is zero if the Lord tarries. As we walk that path, we must not think that our Lord has abandoned us as we suffer the things that are necessary to suffer. He promised that man hanging beside him eternal paradise even as he knew he was not yet finished with great suffering in this life. And so let us prepare ourselves with the promises he has and has not given us, that we might not have wrong expectations. Second, we ought to notice here what a display of divine sovereignty we're witnessing, down to the very details here. You remember that all the way back in chapter 2, Jesus made a promise. He said to those who were challenging him as he had cleansed the temple, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John tells us there, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. He called it back in chapter 2. Three days. He called it. John 3.14, John 12.33, he called it that he would be lifted up on a cross. He called it, Matthew 12.40, that he was going to be buried. Yet this morning we see that, it, that in happening just the way that it happened, happening in just the timeline that he had required by making those promises, it all depended on specific actions of his enemies. We'll see it in detail next week as we think about the burial. If the Jews just let him hang there, which is what is supposed to happen to a criminal convicted of insurrection against the state. You're supposed to hang there until the vultures finish you off. If the Jews do not come and ask for him to be taken down, and if it does not happen in just the way that it happened, he hangs and hangs and hangs for days and days. He is not buried, as he predicted. This is not what must happen, and it is not what he allowed to happen. As Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, Jesus was delivered up according to the perfect, predetermined plan of God. And we see it happen, not in general terms, but we see it down to the details of even human action and will. The Jews making this request, Pilate agreeing to it. We see it happen at that level, and in a way that does no damage whatsoever to their true and legitimate human will. We simply see God reigning sovereign 
as he directs the events to his desired and declared ends, down to the very details. My friends, it's hard to see it more clearly than in these details of the cross. And if God so works and reigns at the cross, does he do less in your life and in mine? I say that he doesn't. And we see it. We see it here. Finally, third and finally this morning, we have to see here what the prophet Zechariah told us we would be seeing when he prophesied this back in Zechariah 12. Can we end by going back to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10? Let's first notice that this is the place John was pointing us to in verse 37. We read that in verse, in verse 10 there. He writes, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, reading the whole section there helps us because it tells us the kind of mourning that he has in mind specifically here. And there's more than one reason and way that people might mourn. There will doubtless be a real mourning of God's enemies one day as they look upon the one whom they have pierced. But what we, can, we can tell them what we just read. That's not the mourning that God has in mind here. Here, he's describing a mourning that comes as a result of God pouring out a spirit of grace. That's what he says. I will pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn. Right? It's a mourning that's coming as a result of God's grace being poured onto someone. Because of that outpouring, when they look upon him whom they have pierced, they mourn as for a firstborn child. Now, that is, that is very relevant for you and me this morning. We who are looking to Christ Jesus for life this morning, let me ask you, do you recognize that this is talking about you? And it helps us to define ourselves. What are we as Christians? It's good and right for us to answer that by describing the access that Christ has granted us to God, by describing our eternal joy and peace, um, by describing our, our humility. We are a humble people. We are a grateful, self-giving people. These are all descriptions of a Christian that we hear in the text of Scripture. But I would suggest to you that what we just heard there, this is foundational to all of those. This is why we are those things. We are those things because first, we are a people down to the last man, woman, and child who know him, the community of those joined to Christ by faith. We are a people who have had our eyes opened when we look at the cross. So that when we look there, we see one that we have pierced. One that we have put to death. One that we killed even as he was dying for us. That's what we see as we look at the cross. And we see it and we weep. That is the beginning of everything else in the Christian life. That's the source of our humility. It's the source of our lowliness and our desire to exalt Him. It's the recognition as we look at the cross. We did this to the Holy One. And He walked there deliberately to rescue us. You're never the same when you've seen that at the cross. But now, since we're ending this morning in Zechariah, look down just a few verses to Zechariah 13, 1, and see what many have suggested we're supposed to think of when we see the water and blood flowing from Jesus' side. It is interesting that it comes right after the pierced statement in Zechariah. Because this text doesn't just end with us in a posture of mourning. Look at the result of what he has done. Zechariah 13.1 On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Ours is a new life, a spiritual life that has begun in mourning. But it's a life of overwhelming gratitude and joy because this one whom we have pierced has brought us, has poured out in a fountain for us, cleansing from sin and uncleanness. So what do you see when you come to this text about the cross? I say to you that that sight, it changes everything. It makes me define victory as we are about to sing it. Victory in this life is self-abasing, him exalting. If, if I am such, if I'm living in this way where I... Nothing explains that except for a supernatural transformation that was required, that required the death of the Son of God. We can never see anything else the same again when we have been made to look upon him whom we have pierced and to see him rightly so that we weep. This is what our Father has planned for his people from before the foundation of the earth, and this is what we live in as we live out our days. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we see today your Son dead on the cross as the cost of our sinful rebellion against you. And we ask you, Father, and we ask this in accordance with your word, would you make us to weep at the sight of our shepherd who saved us from a fate that was our own making? Cause us to see him there and to mourn over what we have done. And let our mourning be turned into rejoicing as we find our rest beneath him there at the cross, beneath the fountain of cleansing that he has provided. We thank you for this sight given again to us this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.